You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Bezras Hashem, we're going to be continuing and reaching the completion, or at least the arrested completion, of Rabbi Nachman's Tale of the Seven Beggars, the Sheva HaKabtsanim. And on the sixth night of Sheva Brachos, we encounter once again the handless beggar who visited the children when they were lost in the forest, offering them food and hope, denying their ability to follow after them, but returning once again to celebrate their wedding that was taking place in the pit dug into the mud, covered by branches, twigs, and garbage. And on the seventh day, the handless beggar, like everybody else, announces, after hearing the yearning and the crying and the desire that the beggars who are being married have for him, and he says, Hineni, here I am. I emerge out of the midst of your, your yearning for me or your yearning itself actualizes me. And the handless beggar says to them, when we met in the forest, I offered you a blessing that you should be as I am. And now here at your chasana, at your wedding, I offer this to you as a gift, that you should be as I am. And the handless beggar continues and he says as follows. You believe that my hands are stumps, the beggar told them, but really, they are quite perfect. In fact, I have extraordinarily powerful hands, but I don't use my strength or my power for anything in this world because I need it for another purpose. This was confirmed to me by the castle made of water. There was once a king who desired a princess and he devised many plots to capture her. And finally, he succeeded in bringing her to his side. One night, the king dreamed that the princess rose and killed him. He awoke with a startle, and the memory of his dream troubled him deeply. He called for the soothsayers and the wise men of his palace, and they said that the dream meant what the dream looked like, that she was indeed going to kill him. The king did not know how to respond or what to do with her. He could put her to death, but that would upset him. He could also banish her but the very thought angered him, for after all of his efforts to obtain her, she would now be taken by some other man. In any case, were he to let her go, the dream would surely be fulfilled, for once she was under the protection of another, she could return and then kill him. But he feared death at her hands as well, were he to let her remain in his court. He could not decide what to do. And meanwhile, because of his fears, his love for her began to diminish. Gradually it disappeared, and she too, in turn, gradually ceased loving him. Eventually she came to hate him, and she fled from the court. The king sent out his scouts to search for her. When they returned, they reported that she had taken refuge near the castle of water. 
The castle of water is surrounded by ten walls of water, one inside the other. Within the castle, the very ground one walks upon is water, and so are the garden and all of the trees and the fruit that grow therein. The beauty and the splendor of this castle surely needs no description, for a castle made all of water is a great marvel. No one, of course, could enter it, for since the whole castle is made of water, anyone who tried to enter would drown. The princess, in her flight away from the palace, had reached the castle of water, and now she was circling around it. This, too, was reported to the king, who assembled his army to set out to capture her. When the princess saw them, she decided to run into the castle, for she preferred drowning to being caught by the king and forced to return with him. Then, too, there was always the chance that she would survive her leap into the waters and succeed in entering the castle. The king saw her running into the water. So that is how it is, he said to himself, and he commanded his soldiers to shoot at her. If she perished, he thought, so be it. They shot, and she was struck by all ten kinds of arrows with their ten kinds of poison. She continued her flight into the castle. She passed through the gates of all ten watery walls, for the gates of the walls of the castle were made of water as well, to each inner court. There she fell and she remained in a deep faint. Once I told the story to some people who had all been boasting about the strength of their hands. Each had described a great feat that testified to their power. One boasted that their hands were so powerful that they could catch and retrieve an arrow after it had been shot from its bow. What kind of arrow can you retrieve? I asked, said the handless beggar. There are 10 kinds of arrows, and each tip is smeared with a different kind of poison. Each of the 10 inflicts a different kind of harm, and each one is more powerful than the last. So which can you retrieve? And can you retrieve the arrow only before it strikes, or even after it hits its mark, asked the handless beggar. I can retrieve the arrow even after it has struck its prey. But what kind of arrow can you retrieve, I asked again. And he described the particular type of arrow to which his strength applied. If you can retrieve only one kind of arrow, said the handless beggar, you certainly cannot heal the princess. Another boasted that his hands were so powerful that when he received, he was actually giving. And therefore, he was always a great giver of charity. For any time that he received a gift, it was as if he was offering charity. But there are ten kinds of charity, said the handless beggar. What kind do you give? He answered that he gave a tithe of one in ten. If you only give this for charity, you certainly cannot heal the princess, for you penetrate only the first of the walls that surround her. Another man boasted of his power to bestow the wisdom that all of the leaders of the world needed just by laying his hands on their heads. But there are 10 kinds of wisdom, said the handless beggar. Which kind can you bestow? He described a particular kind of wisdom that he could bestow. And the handless beggar said, you certainly cannot heal the princess, for you cannot know her pulse. There are 10 kinds of pulses, and if you can bestow only one kind of wisdom, you certainly can only understand one kind of pulse. Yet another amongst them boasted that his hands were so strong that he could hold back the storm and make it into a pleasant breeze. But there are 10 kinds of wind, said the handless beggar. Which one can you hold back with your hands? He told me which of the winds he was able to conquer. And I said to him, you too cannot heal the princess, for you cannot play the melodies and the songs that she needs to hear. She can be healed by 10 kinds of melodies, but you can play only one of them. And you, what can you do, they asked me. 
I have all of the powers that you have, I answered, and I can do that which you cannot do. Each of you has only one-tenth part of a power of which you boast, but I possess all other nine parts of power as well. Only I can heal the princess, for he who does not possess all ten kinds of charity in his hands cannot pass through the ten walls of water, for he would drown in an attempt. The king and his soldiers pursued the princess and they were drowned. But I, said the handless beggar, I can penetrate all ten walls of water. These walls of water are the waves of the sea that stood still like a wall, and they are raised up by the wind. The waves that form the walls stand there always, but it is the wind that supports them. I can pass through each of the ten walls of the castle of water, and I can remove all ten kinds of arrow from the body of the princess. With my ten fingers I can feel each of the ten kinds of pulse, and I can heal the princess by means of ten kinds of melodies. Thus I and I alone can heal the princess completely, and that is the confirmation and the acknowledgement of the great power that I bear within my hands. And today, said the handless beggar, I am giving this to you as a wedding gift. The gladness of the wedding feast was greater than ever, and all who were there were very joyful indeed. Now, the last sentence in this story, because as we said, the seventh beggar doesn't arrive. There is no seventh day of Mishnah. On the seventh day of the Sheva Brachos, Rabbi Nachman stopped telling the story. But the ending of the sixth day of the story ends as follows. Ve'ata, and now, ani noten lachem zot b'matana. I am giving you my power as a gift. sham simcha gedola v'chedva raba me'od. And I am offering you the gift today, and what was found there was a deep sense of joy and an intense form of joy, that word ma'od, as we're going to see, which is so important to what we're going to try and describe. Now, Rabbi Nachman told this last part of the story on the sixth day of Nisan. And on the sixth day of Nisan, Rabbi Nachman was preparing for Pesach. And he had left his house because the house was being cleaned for Pesach. And Rabbi Nassim records that Rabbi Nachman traveled to the house of the Rav of Breslov at that time. And all of the students gathered together. But when Rabbi Nassim records exactly what took place in terms of beginning the sixth day of the story, nobody remembers. All they know is that Rabbi Nachman had left his house for the sake of cleaning for Pesach and that through that process of leaving his house, the story of the handless beggar was told. Now, the hands represent power. Yadayim represent the capacity of an individual to participate and be engaged and in, be involved in the toil and the work through which one cultivates process and actualization in the world. Yadayim Askaniosim, hands are considered the place of work, the toil of one's hands, the work of one's hands, the craftsmanship of one's hands. Hands represent the human capacity to take the world and be sholate on the world, to conquer the world, to subdue the world, to utilize the world, and to take its power 
and transform it into things that are beautiful, to plant with our hands and to build with our hands. And the handless beggar, as he arrives to offer the gift to the children, he says, you think I don't have hands. You think that my hands are unable to work in this world. You think my hands and my power is powerlessness in this world. And on a certain level, you're correct, but it's not because I'm weak. My weakness in this world emerges from the very simple fact that my strength is needed for another place. My strength is needed for something larger than this world. Or better stated, my strength is needed in order to draw down that which is beyond the world into this world. And you think that my hands are broken and you think that my hands are weak? My hands are not weak at all, but rather my hands are more powerful than anybody. And how do I know? I know because I am able to draw back the 10 arrows after they have been shot. I know because I am able to test the pulse in all 10 ways. I know because I am able to sing the 10 forms of melody with my hands. I know because I have the 10 wisdoms in my hands. The arrows that the handless beggar is describing are all of the difficulties that an individual experiences in this world, that the world experiences, that history goes through, the pain, the 10 different types of poison, the 10 different forms of chaos and difficulty and forlornness and anxiety and sadness and lostness and hopelessness and all of the variant forms of that broken feeling within the soul. Each and every one of those 10 poisons affect an individual in this world in a different way. That as our tzaddikim have told us, life is not simply a metaphor for being at war, but life is quite literally being thrown into the midst of a war. It's not so much of an existential notion as much as the opening paragraph in the Ramchal's Mesilas Yesharim, that a person must see to it as if they look at themselves as being thrown into a pre-existing battle. And we have arrows coming at us from every which way. And each arrow is not simply harming us in the same type of way, but rather each arrow carries with it its own form of samhamavas, its own form of poison. There's the poison of hopelessness. There's the poison of despondency. There's the poison of self-judgment. There's the poison of temptation. There's the poison of jealousy, the poison of honor, the poison of anxiety. Each and every one of us experience different arrows striking us with different poisons. And the handless beggar says, I can save the world from each and every one of those poisons. I can be metaken those problems. But my tikkun, my rectification, is not a tikkun prati. It's not a tikkun that simply focuses on one particular arrow or one particular poison, like the other individuals who are bragging about the strength of their hands. But rather, my tikkun, says the handless beggar, is a tikkun klali. It's a general remedy. It's a remedy that understands the root of all poison, so that when looking at the different symptoms that individuals experience in their day-to-day -day lives that burden them, that push them down, 
that make them worried, that make them scared, that make them hurt. The handless beggar is capable of saying, I understand the root of all of this. And because I understand the root of all of that pain, I can also fix all of that pain. Because yesh inyan there is something that has the capacity of transforming everything into goodness. Now this concept of yitapech hakol, that it can transform everything, is very specific because there are many who are trained and well-armed to fix one particular issue, to give insight in one particular area, to offer support or hope for one particular type of problem because they're able to look at that particular problem and respond to it and try and work through it. But then there is a power, there is a power that doesn't see particularization of difficulty, but rather sees one general concept of darkness, one general concept of hopelessness, an overreaching concept that colors the eyes and the windows of every individual soul. And this handless beggar, who is capable of seeing the Ra in its general sense, who's capable of reaching down to the root of all human difficulty and understanding the common denominator that shapes all of them, someone who grabs hold of the Shoresh of negativity itself, of the root or the source of negativity, is capable of reaching down and transforming it because if you understand the root of something, you can uproot it entirely. Otherwise, all we're doing is treating particular symptoms. And what the handless beggar is saying is that I have a tikkun klali. I have a general remedy to fix each and every one of these poisons. And as we're going to see throughout the rest of this narrative, the general remedy is going to be the remedy that we've been hearing all along from each of the other beggars, the general remedy is going to be the gift of emuna, the gift of faith, the gift of believing beyond rational understanding, the gift of annihilating rational understanding, the gift of living in a space far beyond anything rational, living in a space of suspended rationality, a learned ignorance that propels us into that into that womb of faith, into that place where all things are comfortable even though we have no idea why or how or when or where they're going to be comfortable. But rather, it is still animated by that undying belief that things are still okay. That undying sense of amuna that underlies all human experience is what the handless beggar utilizes in order to cure all 10 forms of poison the capacity to retrieve all of the arrows. Now, I think it's important to understand that the handless beggar doesn't claim to be able to stop the arrow before it's thrown. He doesn't even claim to be able to stop the arrow before it hits the individual and causes harm. That would be magical thinking. To pretend that there can be some sort of spiritual guru or some spiritual mindset that can negate the arrow's sting, that can negate the pain of what it means to be human, would be fantasy at best and heresy at worst. What the handless beggar is saying that even after the arrow has been shot from the bow, 
And not only that, but even after the arrow has penetrated the individual, has penetrated the princess and harmed us and harmed her and harmed all of us, nevertheless, I can still retrieve it. Meaning to say that there is a remedy that comes along even after a person has experienced difficulty. Very often and in an immature way, we are taught consciously or unconsciously that remedies are only when they prevent pain, that remedies are only valuable when they ensure that there's no difficulty whatsoever. Because if we suffer at all, and if we struggle at all, then clearly there's no real remedy. But on a certain level, the remedy that comes after the maka, the remedy that emerges after the blemish, after being hurt, after struggling, is even more powerful because it restores hope to the hopeless. It restores light to those who have lived in darkness. It draws closer those who are far. It brings faith to the faithless and it brings comfort to those who have suffered all along. Or as we said at the very, very beginning of our talks on Rabbi Nachman's Torah, it reaches down to the bottom of the barrel and it says it is specifically here. It is specifically at the bottom of the barrel that I am coming to fix things. That even though AFLP, even though you think you've suffered and that you're lost and that you're forlorn and that there's nothing to do for you anymore, nevertheless, AFLP Cain, nevertheless, as Rabbi Nachman says so often, it is Daika specifically here that I come to bring the remedy. That the remedy isn't something that prevents the arrow from stinging in the individual with the existential poisons of day to day life. But the remedy is one that is capable of acknowledging the poisonous sting of the arrow. It is capable of acknowledging the reality of difficulty, yet nevertheless, it doesn't lose hope in the sight of suffering. It doesn't give in to despondency when it sees that the arrow has already been shot, but rather it is capable of pulling the arrow out even after it has caused its damage. Because that hope that perseveres even through darkness itself even in the annihilation of hope itself. That is the impossible hope that Rabbi Nachman is trying to give us. It's that impossible hope that exists even the annihilation of itself, that even within hopelessness itself, ein shum ba'ulam klau, the concept of hopelessness doesn't exist whatsoever. Because as long as you're talking and as long as you're breathing, as long as you're walking and as long as you're doing anything, there's still hope that something good can emerge in that experience and out of that experience. And how is it that the handless beggar is capable of pulling these arrows out of the princess? How is it that this handless beggar claims to be capable of healing the princess in all of her woundedness? And the princess is all of us, and the princess is none of us, and the princess is humanity as a whole, and the princess is Claudius Yisrael, and the princess is the world, and the princess is the universe, and the princess is each and every individual heart, and the princess is each of us in our own despondency and excitement. And this is the princess that Rabbi Nachman opened up his Sipori Maisios with, where we're told that she was saved. We don't know how she was saved, but she was saved. This is the lost princess. The handless beggar is the one who comes along to complete the story. The first story that Rabbi Nachman told of Avedas Basmelech, that lost princess who finds herself lost in the palace of no goodness. 
And we're told, as Rabbi Nachman tells us, at that enigmatic end that opens the heart to the possibility of salvation that emerges from a place of not knowing, that she was saved. Yes, she was certainly saved. But how was she saved? We have absolutely no idea. That opens up the gift of Rabbi Nachman's chaotic fairy tale land, the dreamscape where in light is dark and dark is light and up is down and down is up. And how is she saved? We're hearing that right now. She's saved by the handless beggar. Because the handless beggar with the tikkun klali, with the general rectification, is capable of pulling out all forms of poison from the world. Because he understands that despondency and hopelessness and shame and sadness and fear and anxiety all emerge from one unified source, and that is an absence of emuna, a lack of emuna, or rather not a lack, but not enough emuna. Because the entire purpose of a person's life is nach emuna, nach emuna, more emuna. Every second that a person is alive, the only goal, the only thing we are capable of possibly doing is drawing more emuna into ourselves. We have admitted that we are powerless. As the handless beggar says, I look powerless, I am certainly powerless in this world because my power is reserved for something else entirely. We have admitted we are powerless over everything and that our lives have become unmanageable. But the only thing that we can do in the face of that powerlessness is draw down emuna into our hands. As we see in the Torah HaKadosh and the Holy Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu, Bahayu Yadav Emuna, and his hands were faithful. His hands represented his faith. They weren't working in the ground. They weren't utilizing power and strength to overcome the world and subdue the world and become a master of the ur ground, as the philosophers so often discuss. But rather, those hands were receptacles and vessels to disclose that even though I have hands, even though I appear to have power, <coughs> I willfully acknowledge my powerlessness. I willfully am mishtachaveh. I bow down to he who has all power. I give my power over to the source of faith. And the hands became faith. When one source of power becomes a source of faith, what once looked like hands of my own begin to appear as if I'm handless. And how is it that the handless beggar was capable of saving the princess? It was by understanding the 10 pulsations within the body, which are in truth the 10 melodies of the world. The music that emerges out of our experience is not monolithic. It's not simply consonant chords that give birth to a singular sound. That's not music. Music is born, as our tzaddikim tell us, as, a, as any ear understands, out of the confrontation between the lightness of consonant chords that build upon themselves, elevating the soul to a place of supernal transcendence, and consonant chord and dissonant chords, which drag the soul back down into the earthly reminder that we are stuck in difficulty and pain. And this dialectical balance, this arrested dialectic that never arrives at any form of a solution or a resolution, but rather holds itself in its contradistinction, gives birth to the beauty of music. It is the battle and the love story between consonant chords that makes sense when things are going smoothly, when one thing leads to another. 
And yet, on the other hand, there is dissonance. There are dissonant chords that remind us that nothing makes sense. The balancing act of sensibility and the loss of sense, of wisdom and the utter annihilation of wisdom, of heresy and faith, of hope and hopelessness, of light and darkness, that is what gives birth to melody. As Rabbi Nachman says so often in his Sefer Lekuti Maharan, it is specifically the family of the Levian that give birth to music. Why? Because the Levian are representatives of difficulty and constriction. They were the ones who set the boundaries. They were the ones who guarded over measurements and limitations. They were the ones who ensured that nothing go beyond its rightful space. Because music is only born when there is a movement outwards, but that movement outwards is arrested in its development and it's forced to retreat into itself. And then once again, it attempts to surge forwards only to be arrested once again. The stop and go, the ruts of the show, the movement back and forth that gives birth to the friction that creates the beauty of nigunim, of music. Those 10 melodies, those 10 different ways that the handless beggar teaches us to confront the paradox of the world, to confront the fact that there are ups and there are downs. And even when you go up again, you go down again. And even when you're down, you're up. And when you're up, you're down. And when you're left, you're right. And when you're right, you're left. The annihilation of our rationality that gives birth to a faith that makes room for everything we experience in our lives. It is that capacity of the nigun. That nigun is how the handless beggar cures the princess. Those nigunim, that confrontation and that willingness to live with the paradoxical expressions of our lives and our emotions that take place in every moment of our lives, that is how we draw out the poison of all of those 10 arrows. You want to know how to deal with despondency, says the handless beggar. You want to know how to deal with heresy and with loss of faith and with brokenness and with sighing and all of the different 10 poisons. It's by understanding the 10 songs that emerge out of the brokenness of this world. To make oneself into an instrument, to make oneself into an empty vessel through which the air of the world can blow through, creating more beautiful sounds. Khalil, a flute, is the same etymological root as the word halal, as the void because only something that is voided can make room for air to move through it, creating sounds. As we express our breath into an empty vessel, breathing out in order to make more noise, expiring in order to inspire. Now, it is this amuna of the handless beggar, this willingness to understand that deeply entrenched within the 10 forms of poison, are the 10 possibilities of melody. This is what gives the ability to save the princess from the palace of water. Now, what does it mean to be stuck in a palace of water? What does it mean to run away from a place that is no longer safe? What does it mean to run away to try and find safety? And then to find yourself stuck in a palace of water, what does it mean? Or what could it possibly mean? Now, in order to understand possibly what Rabbi Nachman is trying to say with this mushal, or not a mushal, with this narrative, with this story, we have to return back to his grandfather, the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh. Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, told the mushal numerous ways, and his different Talmidim told the story over in different ways. 
about a palace, about a king who lived in a palace and he kicked his son away from the palace. The son had done something terribly wrong and the son was expelled from the palace. But the son yearned always to return to the palace. The son yearned to return to the throne room of his father, to be in the space of the loving, comfort, kindness, rachamim rabim, the rachamim rabim that emerges from the loftiest place of Atik Yoimen, the rachamim of Atik Yoimen, the rachamim that emerges out of the stories of the ancient days, which culminate with this story of the seven beggars, that this son desires so deeply to return back to that place, to find himself back in that place of comfort. Yet his father, although the father longs for the child to return back, although the father is in pain every moment that the child is not back, nevertheless, for the palace to exist, for the kingdom to exist, for existence to exist, there needs to be reward and punishment. There needs to be right and wrong. There needs to be limitation and expression. There needs to be restriction and permission. And what his father does is he creates a palace with walls and walls around it, with vicious animals and vicious guards and all sorts of difficult distractions and areas that block the child from ever returning. And the child appoints soldiers to try and return. And some soldiers make it to the first barrier and they turn around and they say, I can't. Ich kennisch sein. I can't move any forward. It's too frightening. And then there are other heroic soldiers of this child who run forward and they make it through two barriers and only to return in fear and in fright and overwhelmed. And yet it's only the son who's capable of moving closer and closer to those barriers and those boundaries that block the throne room. And slowly but surely he comes closer and closer to the throne room. And as he comes closer, being filled with the anxiety and the dread of imminent death, of imminent loss, of imminent destruction because of how close he's coming, suddenly it's revealed miraculously or retroactively that the first wall was nothing but a mirage, that it was nothing but an achiza sa'inayim. It was nothing but an image of fear that blocked the individual from moving forward. And with a renewed courage, he moves forward to the next barrier, only again to be filled with that anxiety that is born out of confronting that which is overwhelming. As David Melech Malcolm Sheikha writes so often in Tehillim, I have come to a place where I can no longer climb. I have, the waters have reached my neck. I can't move forward anymore. I can't climb anymore. There's a cliff that I'm about to fall over. But suddenly, with a renowned sense of courage, the child moves through the next layer of barriers, only to realize that it was nothing but an achiza senayim. It was nothing but a mirage. It was nothing but confusion of the mind, the concealment of the mind, the lack of faith. And slowly but surely, the child is able to make it through all of these imaginary boundaries. These boundaries, which were very, very real, up until the moment of moving through them, at which point they are revealed to not be real. It is the moving through them itself that reveals them to not be real. Until ultimately the child is capable of reuniting with his father. And there is a great and profound joy in the world when the son reunites with the father and the father reunites with the son. So too with our handless beggar. The handless beggar says, nobody can enter into the palace of water. You'll drown. You won't be able to breathe any longer. The fear will drown you. The hopelessness will drown you. 
for it stands upon nothing. It stands upon nothing. There's no place to stand. There's no place to grab hold of. There's no source of comfort in the palace of water where a person can say, I am okay right now. There's no dry land. There's nowhere to stand upon. And that is what prevents everybody from entering into the palace of water. The fear of suffocation, the fear of death, the fear of drowning, the fear of overwhelmingness, the terror that emerges when a person conceives in their mind of a place without any comfort or any possibility of being saved. But the handless beggar who has been saving all of his power for something that is beyond this world, he says, I am going to enter in there because these walls are nothing but water. These walls are nothing but fake walls. And I will sustain myself on the breath that I have saved for this moment. I will sustain myself on the emuna that I can survive even as I move through these walls, even as the water reaches my throat, even as the waters descend and ascend and I have moments of comfort and moments of forlornness. I will move through with the deep belief that I can continue breathing even in breathlessness, that I can continue to have faith even when faith seems to be swallowed up by the raging waters of the sea. Even when that palace of water seems to overcome me, I am capable of moving forward and healing the princess, of drawing faith back into the world, of looking at each form of poison, each and every individual sense of forlornness and despondency and difficulty, and singing a song about it, singing a song about it, taking that discomfort and transforming it into a song. This is what Rabbi Nachman brought into the world with his Tikkun Klali, with his Ten Kapitlach Tehillim. These Ten Kapitlach of Tehillim that Rabbi Nachman offered into the world at the moment of his death, or very close to the moment of his death, just as this story is being told very close to Rabbi Nachman's death. These ten languages of pain and suffering in the world, these ten different poisons in our lives, can all be transformed and be netapech into words of praise, into words of expression. My dear friend and Revi, Rav Davidel Weinberger, Rav Davidel Weinberg has been giving a series of shirim on the Tikkun Klali, which is an incredible, incredible suggestion to listen to what he's saying about these 10 kapitlach of Tehillim. The ability to transform these 10 forms of poison, these 10 forms of despondency into 10 forms of strength. And it's only when we are willing to relinquish the strength of our hands. It is only when we are willing to look at ourselves and realize we are handless. There is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. At that moment, we find the Hayu Yadav Amuna, that his hands were hands of faith, that his hands were hands of imagination. Biyad Hanavim Adame. It is the hands of the prophets that give birth to imagination. Because when we relinquish control and we embrace powerlessness, Yesh Inyan there is an Amuna that emerges into the soul and transforms that powerlessness into a power that is greater than anything we could have ever imagined. The handless beggar comes and offers this to us as a gift. He offers us the ability to breathe when submerged underwater, how to move through those walls even though they look impenetrable, how to swim through those raging waves even though they seem so impossible to move through. And he offers it to the children as a gift. And at this point, the children are truly, truly happy.
because the entire story of the lost children, these individuals who were lost in the woods, lost in the forest, starving and begging, who are saved for only a moment, only to lose hope again, then throw themselves into a life of yearning, a life of begging, a life of being absolutely nothing and self-nullified, a life of faith, a life of not knowing where food is going to come from the next day or where sustenance is going to come from the next day. And they find joy and they're capable of finding joy. Where do they find joy? They find joy buried in the mud, covered with trash, surrounded by deformed beggars and impoverished individuals who beg for a living. Because as Rabbi Nachman announced at the beginning of this entire story, I will tell you how once upon a time they were joyous from within despondency, from within the loss of hope, from within brokenness. I will tell you of a time of ancient days where joy was found specifically in powerless, or as the king describes to his son as he desires to give over the kingship to his son in his life, I will offer you my kingship. I will offer you kingship in, your, in my lifetime as long as you can promise that when you descend from Malchus, when you become impoverished and when you lose your kingship, you will remain happy. Because if you can't remain happy in the loss of power, that shows that you thought your hands were something to begin with, that the Yad Malchus was something to begin with. And that's a clear sign that you never deserved Malchus to begin with. But when a person recognizes that even in the loss of Malchus, even in the loss of hope, even in the loss of the sense of power, there is a joy to be uncovered, there is a freedom to be uncovered, there is a cheiras to be uncovered, there is a self-annihilation and a reaction to the fact that I can't do it anymore. Ich kenish design. And that Hashem, you need to do it. At that point, our hands stop being hands of self-worship and they become hands of Amuna. And that gives birth to a very great joy that takes place in the pit buried in the mud, covered by branches, twigs, and garbage. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.